0: you call people in this world who are really struggling or who find themselves left out of any pictures of power? Are they the have-nots or the marginalized or the poor? Are they the forgotten? Are they the oppressed? Well, if truth be told, none of these are ideal descriptions. And there is no one title that's satisfactory given the countless variety of disenfranchised people in this world and their many different circumstances. But today, I want you to hear a word spoken by Mary. That would be the mother of Jesus. In the Christian church, you may know, Mary has long been revered for her identification with people who are left out. She has been celebrated for her desire that the humble and the lowly be exalted or lifted up. The word that she offers her son in this little story I'm about to read to you takes place of all places during a wedding banquet, which sounds like a really strange place to be talking about those who are having a hard time of life. But listen closely to her words and then how she coaches the waiters or servers at this wedding banquet. It all has to do with the glory or the greatness of her son, Jesus, that is about to be revealed. So here it is, the wedding at Cana in Galilee, as the story is often titled. I'm reading from the second chapter of John's gospel, beginning at the first verse. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was present. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And the servants filled them up to the brim. He then said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples trusted in him. So now, a word for you about the Christian church and what it's supposed to really be about in this world, especially in light of those four words of Mary. They have no wine. Take a listen. There are a fair number of Americans. I don't know how many but a fair number of Americans who believe that what our country stands for is what the church stands for. And what the Church of Jesus Christ stands for is exactly what the country stands for as well. That somehow these two entities, the nation and the church, they cherish, they uphold, they believe the same things. In essence, the implication for many, many Americans is that to be American is to be Christian, and to be Christian is quintessentially to be American. But here's the deal. In America, you are not required to offer food to the hungry. There is no law that demands you shelter the homeless. There's no ordinance whatsoever that forces you to visit the lonely or to comfort the infirm. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say you have to provide clothing for the poor. In fact, one of the nicest things about living here in America, one could argue, and many do, is that you really don't have to do anything for anybody. It's from this mindset that we have a rather popular phrase that has a lot of traction in America. God helps those who help themselves. The phrase is so popular that people think it comes from the Bible. When the pollster George Barna did this huge survey a, a decade and more ago. Huge survey. He found that 75% of Americans, that's, that's three-quarters of the nation, believes that this phrase is from the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Jay Leno used to do what the Tonight Show hosts still do, taking a camera crew onto the streets, and asking questions of everyday passers by some odd questions and some everyday questions with hilarious answers. And one time, Jay Leno went to the streets with his camera guy and he would just ask random bystanders to name one of the Ten Commandments. The most popular answer? God helps those who help themselves. Which, of course, is not in the Commandments. And so far as we know, is from Ben Franklin and the Farmers' Almanac back in the 1750s. Well, part of the popularity of that phrase, I think, is the convenient distance it provides between us or someone who utters it confidently and trustingly and anybody else that has poignant needs or desperate poverty or all kinds of brokenness in their lives. It's a, it's a way of keeping, you know, the lived experience of suffering people at arm's length. And so sometimes to speak it, you know, it sort of works to our benefit. It, it feels like we're with it, like we're responsible, like we are better in control of things than some other folks. God helps those who help themselves. Now, I read a moment ago to you a wedding story from the Gospel of John, but it's not really a wedding story. And we have no idea who the bridegroom and the bride are. And yes, Jesus and his mother Mary are present, but we have no idea why they're present, and there's no sense that they even know this bride or this groom. And while weddings are happy events, by and large, there's not even an expression that this was a happy event. I'm not sure it's all that much a story about wedding. So why is the record of this little story in the Bible? Well, there's this little exchange that happens in this story between Mary and Jesus. And I think it's really vital for grasping what the Christian church is in this world and for that matter what it means to live lives of compassion. When the wine runs out at the wedding, and and weddings could be multiple days in length, when the wine runs out, Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. She doesn't ask anything of Jesus, she doesn't demand anything of Jesus, she just says they have no wine, to which he replies. Why is that our business? Why is that our concern? What difference does it make to me and you, he says, to his mother? Well, let's think about this. They have no wine. Do you know how many people in this world have no hope and no support system and no network of friends and no education to speak of? And no guaranteed next meal. And no network of friends. Or metaphorically, do you know how many people there are without wine in this world? Yeah, you do actually, and so do I, I think. And the list is way too long as we contemplate all of the people in this world who have no wine. There is no top of the list but put women on the list who the world over are threatened with violence and who may be demeaned and who in many countries, as you well know, they can't even get an education past fifth grade. Children stuck in generations of poverty. I was talking with a school board member recently. Three and four and five generations of poverty, often living with parents who are so ill-equipped to be parents. They have no wine migrants refugees that just caught between systems and governments i think of the destitute elderly who reside in nursing homes that look and smell like the last place in the world you or i would ever want to visit and in fact they have no visitors they have no wine when mary the mother of jesus says they have no wine she's talking about the plight of a lot of people beyond a simple wedding And we know that there are so many, many people in this situation, whether it's in our community or around the world. We grow weary. At least I do. We want to look the other way. And when we want to look the other way, it's not because we don't care. It's just because we sometimes can feel so powerless because the social needs of this world seem so intractable. Psychologists call this learned helplessness. We just come to believe there's no way out. We come to believe there's just no hope. And so in our discouragement and in our lack of hope and in our detachment from some of the ruffle and tumble of really deep human misery, we have to fight. We have to fight exactly what physicians and nurses fight and are trained to fight as they seek this You know, some critical distance between this constant flow of of patients, often in very serious need. Alexithymia. This incapacity to feel emotion, to express emotion, to even describe emotion. A kind of deadness that can set in, an apathy, if you will where we become more of a spectator than a participant in other lives that are not like our own. Mary says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, well, why is that our business? Why is that our concern? What difference is it to you and to me? Is he displaying this kind of learned helplessness himself that I've been talking about? Is our Jesus holding the needs of other people at arm's length? Mary doesn't answer Jesus. But what she does next is worth paying a lot of attention to. She turns to the stewards in the kitchen, the servants, the busboys, the wine stewards. And what she basically says to them is if I were you, I would keep an eye on what Jesus says next and does next. It's important. Because, in fact, if you pay attention to what next happens, you're going to witness His glory and His greatness revealed. Not long after this, the servants do what Jesus tells them to do. They take this enormous quantity of water, they fill up all these vessels, and then they end up having... Endless barrels of wine, evidently. And the people were no longer without wine. At the outset of the sermon, I spoke of the ease with which we can so easily conflate our nation and the church of Jesus Christ. And as you recall, I spoke of these things, all these things, that our nation doesn't require us to do in coming to the aid of those who suffer those who live way out there on the edges without a lot of hope, those in, who live with extensive poverty. But the calling of the church, it is not identical to the calling of our nation. God summons the church. That would be people within the church, Christian people who follow Jesus Christ. God summons us not to hold the sufferings of marginalized people at arm's length. We're not given the privilege of saying just because our life experience doesn't match the truly poor on most days. We're not given the privilege of saying God helps those who help themselves or that person or that person or that person's misery does not impinge on my life we're not given the privilege of saying, well, I'm so weary of the intractable nature of these social problems that I'm just going to park all my involvement and I'm going to distance myself emotionally. Elexit daimia. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who has long been viewed in the church as the spokesperson for the left out. Those of you that are Catholic, you, you know this Better because historically she has come to represent those who are without wine in this world. They have no wine. So guess what? It's the church that is to absorb at least some of the pain of this world into our consciousness. And it's the church that's supposed to try to act as we do, as effectively as we can, as benevolently as we, as we can, whenever we can. Gwendolyn Brooks, the amazing poet, the first African-American to win the Pulitzer Prize. In one of her poems, we are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Every time we come to terms with this, and we realize this, that we are each other's business and we are each other's bond, we become more thoroughly Christian. As we let the lived experience and the searching anxieties of other people find their way into our souls. The night before Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, he gave this mountaintop speech that some of you are well familiar with. And in it, he talked about the need for all of us to develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. He was riffing on the parable of the Good Samaritan, the guy who attended to the victim on the side of the Jericho Road, robbed and beaten. And his king was riffing on the priest and the Levite who, who went by on the other side of the road, he suggested there's all kinds of reasons to do that. They might have been on their way to a church meeting or they might have feared the robbers were lurking in the shrubbery or they might have feared that the guy was faking it in the, in the, in the gully or that touching his blood would make them unclean. And so the question that the priest and the Levite asked themselves, said King, is if I stop to help this man, what's going to happen to me? And King suggested that the real question for all of us ought to be, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? When Jesus saw real people on the margins, people who are hurting, people who are in desperate straits, people who have no wine, he didn't see their problems so much as he saw their potential. He didn't label these people, just group them all together, you know, with a kind of gross generalization. He didn't keep them at arm's length. He showed compassion. And this is what attracted people, I'm convinced, to Jesus. His compassion. If you read enough of literature on leadership, you may be apt to think that maybe people were drawn to Jesus for his leadership, his his creativity, his alertness, his decisiveness, his emotional maturity, his self-control, his integrity. People were not drawn to Jesus for any of those traits. It was his compassion, his ability to see the person in front of him before he would see all of the ideas or preconceptions or categorizations inside of him. He would see that person first and then make choices that privilege that person or those persons. John concludes his story of the wedding at Cana. Jesus did this converting of water into wine for people who had no wine and thereby revealed his glory and his disciples trusted In him. Amen. and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. May the God of glory dwell in you richly and shine brightly on your path. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thanks for your support of the ministries of St. Paul Lutheran Church. Our commitment to projects that lend hope to other people stretches across the country and around the world. We hope that in a good way you feel a part of that reach. Tune in next Thursday for another edition of the St. Paul Podcast.